We're talking about everything. Abuse comes in many different shapes and forms. Uh, we're most familiar with physical abuse and sexual abuse. But at the, the bottom line, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, uh, I would argue religious abuse, is probably even more devastating in many ways. And that the sexual and the physical abuse have emotional uh, elements to them as well that can be much more scarring and much more traumatic. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. What may a teacher or Kiruv professional do in order to make people from? Do the ends of bringing people closer to Torah justify the means of manipulating them emotionally? And even if the methodology is valid in some way, does it even work? My own feeling has always been that playing mind games in the service of religion is not just wrong, but literally abusive. It potentially causes trauma, and further cements in both the teacher and the students the damaging idea that the teacher has special access to spiritual truth in a way that the student cannot. While someone who has studied Torah hopefully has a greater knowledge of Jewish law, and while he or she may potentially possess insights into spirituality, that does not translate into genuine knowledge of the mind of God. From what I often hear, these abusive rabbis frequently know less about a Kaddish Baruch Hu than others who don't claim such omniscience. What's particularly upsetting is that some of these rabbis are not only tolerated for their abusive conduct, but actually celebrated for it. This is, in fact, the thing that people like about them. And some of them have gained huge followings in person and online. There are many other teachers who do the same thing, even though they're far less famous than the primary offenders. They may be in our own schools. In order to discuss this issue of emotional and religious abuse in the context of teaching Torah, I was honored to invite Rabbi Mark Dratch and Mrs. Rachel Dratch to the podcast. We'll get to that in a moment. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your podcasts, rate and review, and share it with people who appreciate honest conversations about the issues facing Orthodox Jews today. I invite you to subscribe to my substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. To get a free subscription, click on the link in the description of this podcast. Help me continue to promote a halachic, welcoming, and honest Orthodox Judaism by becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. And if you would like to create a podcast so that you can promote your business, your organization, or your ideas, go to jchpodcast.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Rabbi Mark Dratch is Executive Vice President of the Rabbinical Council of America. He is founder of JSafe, the Jewish Institute Supporting an Abuse-Free Environment. Mrs. Rachel Dratch is Director of Educational Innovation at Prisma. She has held meaningful roles at numerous day schools, including Frisch, Ramaz, Maimonides, Fuchs Mizrahi, Berman Academy, and Beth Tefila. Rachel has also been Director of SLED Educational Consulting. She spends her summers at Camp Mosheva I.O., running drama and special programming, and has served as a scholar-in-residence in many communities. Rabbi Mark Dratch and Mrs. Rachel Dratch, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank it's you so much. To be here. Thank you. And let me begin by wishing you Mazal Tov in your recent Aliyah. Ah, thank you so much. We're excited to be closer neighbors to you guys. Absolutely. 
it's always a good a good thing to have more people in Israel, and particularly people who are my friends. As a prelude to the conversation about abuse and about intimidation in the service of teaching Torah, etc., I'd like to open up, Rabbi Dratch, about your organization, JSafe, an organization that you founded, the full name of which is the Jewish Institute Supporting an Abuse-Free Environment. Obviously, with that name, it says a lot about what we're talking about today. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Well, this is an organization that wanted to change the conversation around issues of abuse, child abuse, domestic violence, and clergy abuse. Um, started, oh gosh, around uh, 15, 20 years ago when um, people weren't talking about these types of topics. And we wanted to put it on the agenda. And we wanted to, to give, uh, to take a look at the, our sources, to take a look at our attitudes, at our stereotypes, and, and to make it okay to talk about these issues, to to change the discussion in terms of halacha, Jewish law, and, and, and Jewish perspective, uh, so that innocent victims could be helped, so that we could change the behavior of possible perpetrators, and so that the community could finally be accountable for uh, what a community what a community needs to be and the way a community needs to comport itself. Can I ask you what you mean by abuse? Are you speaking about physical or sexual abuse or verbal abuse or something else? We're talking about everything. Abuse comes in many different shapes and forms. Uh, we're most familiar with physical abuse and sexual abuse, but at the, the bottom line, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, uh, I would argue religious abuse, is probably even more devastating in many ways, and that the sexual and the physical abuse have emotional uh, elements to them as well that can be much more scarring and much more traumatic. That's interesting. So we're going to get into all of that soon. Let me start off talking about the specific issue that we're going to speak about today, which is emotional abuse, as I Defining it as abuse perhaps is jumping ahead. That's what I would call it. But I speak about intimidation and bullying tactics that are utilized in the service of either teaching or in Kiruv attempts to make people religious. This happens in the classroom. It happens in yeshivot and seminaries, I believe. It happens online, most certainly. And the idea of using abusive words in the context of bringing people closer to Torah is something which troubles me greatly. As I mentioned to you, I'm going to avoid using any names. But let me mention a very, very small example of a bit of behavior which I once witnessed many years ago. I heard a teacher, he was a night seder rebbe in a certain yeshiva, and he mentioned to a student there who was going to a secular university, and he did not approve of this particular university, which admittedly did not have a big Jewish community. And he told him that if you go to this university, I'm going to tear Kriya, I'm going to rip my garment as if uh, I'm sitting shiva for you. That's a very small example. There are far more egregious examples. But for me, that simply represents a type of attitude. I mean, the number of things that are wrong with this in terms of the negative message to the student, in terms of teaching him that you're dead to me, all of the things that are done in this, I think is terrible. So, Mrs. Dratch, can I ask you to please comment on that kind of behavior, what you've seen in the classroom, what you've seen as a teacher of teachers? Does this exist? It certainly exists. Um, and I think that there's a, a wide spectrum of, of what that means that that kind of interaction exists. And actually, I want to I want to throw the question back at you in a sec. But I, I would say that Baruch Hashem, I, I, like like my husband said, now in society, it's 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 become we become more aware of how dangerous that is, and it's become much more appropriate and acceptable to to learn more and to become more honest about how we talk to our students and our children. I'll give you a silly example. You know, when, when kids are little and we don't want them to get out of bed, right? So I, I remember hearing about parents who would say, don't get out of bed or the monsters will get you. It's silly. And and we we would make up those those constructs. You know, 
thank God I don't, my parents never did that. I did not do that. That being said, it was a very acceptable thing. You can, you can exaggerate, you can lie to your kids, you can to get, because it's for their greater good. And nowadays that's much less acceptable. And I think that I'm not excusing anything, but I think a lot of this um, manipulation comes from that culture of, you know, it's, it's, it's all for your own good. Um, it's kind of hierarchical, like kind of, you know, patronizing, like I know what's best for you. So I'm just going to sort of manipulate it, but that's how I was raised and look how it turned out so well. Um, I think that there are scars. I think you're right. And it's only recently that we can um, admit the damage that's done. But I would, I would point, push back to you, um, Rabbi Khan, in that case, can you be specific about the damage to the student? And I'll tell you why I'm asking. It's for so many people that might be listening to this podcast, when you say, so the, the Rebbe said he's going to tear Korea. Some people might be saying, you know, sort of scratching their heads like, okay, so what? Can you articulate why that's so painful on the student end and maybe on the other students who were, who were witnessing that exchange? Because that actually, that piece, the, the naming of that, that's one of my new Hebrew words, yishum, okay, is really important to unpack those. So putting it back at you, I apologize. Okay, no, don't apologize. I like having a conversation and I don't necessarily know the answer. I was not in that classroom. I was in the next classroom over and I heard about it rather than being there. For all I know, the student laughed it off and didn't care. To me, listening to it and perhaps bringing my own scars to the table and thinking about how it would have affected me, mm. saying something like that, number one, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, so if I don't, please let me know. Number one, part of the problem is the lack of trust in the student, basically telling the student that if you do this, there's no question that you are history in a Jewish sense. The second part is the idea of you are dead to me. The context that I'll be sitting Shiva, I'll be tearing Kriya, I'm making a funeral for you is a message not only of lack of trust in the student, but it's an abusive way of manipulating what that teacher wants to get out of the student because he's saying, if you go to this place, it's dangerous for you. And because of that, I'm going to say anything that I find necessary in order to make sure you don't go there. And that gets to the final point, which is that the teacher himself is the arbiter of truth. He knows that this is extraordinarily dangerous for you. Mm -hmm. He knows that this will destroy you as a religious Jew. And because he knows the truth, he can do anything in the service of that truth. The problem is, of course, teachers are not omniscient. There are plenty of people who can go to a situation like the student was about to go to and be fine and maybe even become stronger. The fact that the teacher decided, I know the reality and you don't, is a type of hierarchical assumption which I find extremely dangerous. I don't mean that teachers don't have to show that they know more than a student, but that's in areas in which they're expert and in areas which the student asked them about. This student, as far as I know, did not say, what do you think if I go to right. this university? It's still inappropriate, the language, but if he asked him about what do you think if I go to University X, at least then the conversation was coming from the student and the teacher might have to say it in a different way, but he can be honest. In right. this situation, the yeah. teacher offered it on his own accord. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Right. I think, it, look, it also takes agency away from the student. What it's saying is, if, if this Rebbe really had problems with that, there's a way to engage in conversation. There's a way to engage in very frank and honest conversation about what the Rebbe is afraid of and what the consequences may be, mm -hmm. what the influences may be. But then you're empowering the student to make his own decisions and to be the master of his own destiny, which mm -hmm. ultimately is what we want to do for right. all of our students. But by not doing that right. um, and imposing himself in his will and manipulating him emotionally, 
uh, it wasn't a real, it wasn't a fair conversation. It wasn't an equal, it wasn't an equal conversation. So I just heard Todd Rick Lavoie speak. He's just a giant in education. If you don't know him, go look up Google him. He's just brilliant. Um, and one of the things that Rick Lavoie was speaking about was that the most damaging thing a teacher could could do to a student is say that you disappointed me. Because if I get angry at you, you can handle it. But if you think back, and this is what Rick Lavoie was saying, is that if you think back, you can remember the few times you disappointed someone. If you can remember the date and the time when you were wearing and where you sat, it's an incredibly manipulative tactic and it's destructive. And, and one of the things that Rick Lavoie was talking about was that we can actually impact people in the positive for much more, a greater long term. But it's it's an easy short term win to be the to go the disappointed path. And I think that so many people grew up that way. They themselves don't realize that they're damaged. And it reminds me of something I wrote down before is, you know, like Loya Dasi, like I didn't know. And there's there's this phrase it repeated in Tanakh about I I'm, it's OK, I, I, I shouldn't be penalized because I didn't know. Because And the truth is. There's a real, real mea culpa in, in terms of abuse bechal in the Jewish community and bechal in the world about not being aware of how damaging certain behaviors and words and facial expressions are to people. Um, and we see this on social media. We see this in the classroom. We see this all the time. And not knowing is actually not an excuse. It doesn't get us out of responsibility. Um, so I think that that's important. As a rabbi, I've got to add a little bit of Torah here. When the Mishnah says in Avot, uh, that you're supposed to not just amass or gather many students, what Chaim Bolajan says means to cause them to stand up on their own, to empower them, to give them the ability to think. What would have happened had the had this Rebbe that you're that, that you're mentioning spoken to this student to accept responsibility for himself, for his values, for his commitment to Torah? For his commitment to observance and elevated him and raised him to accept that responsibility it would have been a whole very different lesson. But what you really have here is this very top-down patriarchal kind of imposition of, uh, of of a teacher of a teacher's will, which unfortunately we we see in certain parts of our community now, where we've, we're we're tending towards authoritarianism in many many ways. And we're not empowering people to think on their own and to and to make decisions on their own, but to defer to authority. Not to defer to, I'm not referring to halakhic authority where a psak is necessary, but to, re, but to defer to an authority where we're talking about how a person li- lives his life or lives her life and, and the types of choices that they make. And this, uh, I think, just feeds into that. Now, there are many students who are resilient, and this would not bother, but there are many who are not, and it has a terrible impact on them. And the teacher never knows whether that's how, how resilient or not that student is that he or she is speaking to. I think that speaks to a bechlal in orthodoxy today. There's a lot of fear. A lot of fear. I can't do this. It'll impact my shidduch. I can't do that. It'll impact my brother, my sister, my kids' shidduch. There's a tremendous amount of fear of what people will say. And we're, I think that that's one of our greatest Achilles heel, like our greatest um, things that are holding us back as an orthodox community is that we're so afraid of what the others will say around us, that, that there's so much peer pressure about conformity that it's very painful to say no and to be able to speak out. So I'll give an example. Uh, my husband and I ha- saw the screening of this beautiful Israeli movie called Akara. It's an incredibly powerful, beautiful um, movie. It's actually based on Achuva. I'm blanking, I'm so sorry, on the name of the Rav 
who opened the film school and who produced this movie. It's gorgeous. It's based on a beautiful chuba from a long time ago about abu- an abusive relationship between a Rob and, a, and let's just call it a student for the purposes of this conversation in showing the movie and in discussing it with students all over Israel, this Rob movie maker had so many students approach him and say, show him texts that they received from their Rebbeim that were really inappropriate and that the student had no idea that they're inappropriate. And, and we don't offer our students um, language for how to respond. You know, we don't offer them, this is okay, this isn't. There, there's not a whole lot of training we, we give. Um, that was one of the powerful lines in the movie when she yeah. was this woman questions whether or not she was permitted to remain with her husband is in front of a Beit Din. She's sitting in front of three rabbis and they asking her about why she seemingly acquiesced to a very difficult, in a very difficult situation. And she said, Lo yadati rav rasha. I didn't know there could be a bad rabbi. And the truth is, we know there can be many bad rabbis. There are many wonderful rabbis. I think most rabbis are wonderful and most teachers are wonderful. But there are, there is such a concept as a rav rasha. Just to take it in a slightly different direction, I went to a training uh, last year run by Keshet in New York, who do, does work with LGBTQ plus um, people, uh, especially teens who are Jewish. And they did a gorgeous training about consent, not just sexual, but any kind of consent. And what struck me about their training, which I've, I've talked to so many people about, was that what was different in their training was not just that they talked about no means no, and this is what consent looks like but they helped people choreograph receiving a no. So like, let's say you ask me to do something and I say, no, I can't. We never, we always tell people no means no, but we've never taught, I, I've never seen people teach others or be taught. Like when you hear a no, what is the choreography of the next five seconds? I accepted your, so now what, I'm embarrassed. Now I'm stuck. How do I navigate that? Okay, whether it doesn't have to be sexual, but how do I navigate a no? Our teachers don't know how to navigate a note. Our students don't know how to navigate a note. It's part of why we're having such political unrest in the world. We don't know how to handle it when someone says no. And we haven't taught our children or our adults how to navigate. We, no means no, great. So so what does that look like? Five seconds after the no. like, And I think, what if the Rebbe heard that the kid is not taking the path that he thought he should? So what does that mean? Does that mean you're dead to me? We haven't, you know, orchestrated that for him. And I, and I think that that's part of how we can impact our training of people. That is such an important point. You just both said so many things. I'm sitting here with my jaw dropped a bit because there's a lot that you're saying that I frankly never thought about. Even though this is an issue which I think about a lot, it's not an issue which I am trained in. It's something which I'm bothered by. And in fact, when I started my yeshiva along with my friend Rabbi Pesach Waliki. Yisodia Torah, which closed about eight years ago, one of the things that I wanted to do was to avoid any sorts of manipulative types of mental games, as I called them then. And there are plenty of reasons that we shut down. But I'll say this, the fact that we didn't play mental games, or at least I tried my best to avoid them, and I think my staff did as well, strangely enough, that didn't help us. What I mean by that was, I don't think that that was a reason that people wanted to come to us. In fact, sometimes... I got the feeling people kind of like those rabbis. They like these yeshivot they hear about where rabbis will play these games and they make you from. And if people complain, they say, yeah, but it works. My response to that always was, you know something? Even if it works 99% of the time, and I do not believe that for a second, but even if it does work 99% of the time, you can never sacrifice that one child 
even in the service of making 99 other people from. It's not legitimate. It's a terrible violation of Torah. It's a chilul Hashem, frankly. And I'd like to know, why do you think that students like this? Because it seems to be something which, as much as we say no one wants to be abused, in the classroom, some people seem to actually like that kind of attitude. Maybe if it's directed to somebody else, I don't know. But I think sometimes even if it's directed to them, they get something out of it. Do either of you have a way of looking at that to explain this phenomenon? Well, first of all, I want to just clarify the definition of bullying, which I think the United States uses in general, is that it's in the eye of the beholder. And that's really hmm. complicated and, and and it's hard to tease out because if you ask any teacher if he or she ever bullied, yes, I would say never. So it's really complicated. And that's an important note to just, that's to, about something else you said. Here's my hot take on why it's very attractive to have a teacher do that because it gives me control. If you say to me, Rachel, in order for you to be happy, you have to say, the whole Sefer Tehillim every week. And then nothing bad will happen to you. If you want to marry a Tamil Chacham, cover your elbows, right? If you want to make sure that your mom doesn't have cancer, that you're going to have a good Parnassah, that insert, then go to YU or stay or make Aliyah or insert thing. That's attractive because I can do that and I have control. And it's very comforting but like at a different level, I, I love the Haredi world. It's very appealing. It's it's a beautiful, simple sisters and Munapshuta there, and that is very holy. I don't want to take away from that. There's also this um, the power of the Rav in that community is so much different than in the like classic maybe modern Orthodox yeshiva yeshiva and um, or day school, and there's something very lovely and. Um, and and I, I guess I'm saying holy and sacred about having that Rebbe Talmud Talmida relationship that we we often don't get in high school in in North America, and it's so appealing to have someone just tell you do this. And there's wonderful things about it, and there's a very heavy you know price tag that it could come with, which is that dangerous slippery slope, which I think is is important to um to be mindful of. I just, I would just add that it doesn't mean that large parts of the of the Haredi world are manipulative Hashishalom, and, no, and yeah. abusive in the way that we've been talking about right, no. in, in this conversation. It's a different kind, different kind of attitude, and people like some people like simple answers because it helps them move forward and to live in a state of gray and uncertainty, uh, to live in a state where you are responsible for yourself as opposed to having mm -hmm. answers as to what mm -hmm. works. With all the and, and we see that with all the school out that are yeah. uh, that are very popular and 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 and, and the, it just doesn't it, it, it's appealing to certain it's appealing to certain people mm -hmm. but it, you know, it could be look we don't have enough time to go through this to the emotional and psychological makeup of this of each and every student that is that is there but there but there are people who are raised in authoritarian families mm -hmm. and that's the way that's how things may resonate for them yeah. It could also be that they're sitting in a classroom and then the Rebbe says something to the teacher says something to them and they feel in a very in a way which doesn't resonate with me, but may resonate for them. This Rebbe really cares for me. Mm -hmm. He is taking he is showing me attention. Uh, he's showing me uh, he's telling me very severe consequences because mm -hmm. this is his way of showing that he cares for me. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, it's Rebbe working had his own issues. Of, and his own insecurities mm. and his own past trauma and imposing that on the students. 
but it could just be that yeah. as, as you see cycles of trauma in families, you see that there's a it resonates yeah. in the relationship between the Rebbe and the student, which does become a parent-child relationship yeah. and maybe reflective of larger and other types of experiences that they both had in their backgrounds. To pick up on something that you said just before about standing up students to think in North America, much of the high school system is learn for the test. That's how we do grades. There's a lot to say on that for another podcast. But if you've been raised for 12 years in the please your teacher, learn for the test, you haven't been taught to think for yourself. And so it's very comforting to have a, a, a Rebbe Talmud or a Morat Talmidah, whatever relationship that that gives you back that feeling of, I just want to please. Tell me what to do to get the A, whatever the A is. And I wonder when we when we raise students to, you know, for the for the grade, are we preparing them adequately for any adult situation? And this is, by the way, I just want to clarify this this um, abusive line, this gray area of abuse. It, it's in all all topics of of study. It's not limited to Jewish. I've seen this in all general studies classes and in sports for sure, in, in theater. Like we have it, unfortunately, we all have those places where you desperately want to belong and be accepted. And that that line is crossed. Now, you both, again, have said a lot of interesting points. I'm curious if, and perhaps, Mrs. Drash, what I'm saying now is just a byproduct of what you mentioned now in terms of the comforting element of being part of the Rebbe caring about you. But I wonder if sometimes, and I particularly see this perhaps with some of the online teachers, YouTube teachers, who have tens of thousands of followers who love them, there's something very comforting about being part of the in crowd. Bullying doesn't have to be you're terrible. It could be he's terrible or she is terrible. By saying that they are going to hell, by saying that those people, as I've heard said on certain online shiurim, shiurim quote unquote, that person's going to get the big Auschwitz, that sort of thing. When you say things like that, what you're doing really is saying, but we're okay. We're part of the in crowd. And as long as we're part of the elect, to use a certain term that may not be appropriate here, as long as we're part of the elect, it actually is very comforting to feel that I'm okay and to push people outside because that means that I'm good myself. Do you agree with me? Yeah. The person that I think you're referring to uh, is somebody that I have a very difficult time listening to. But I know people who listen to him religiously. And I was trying to understand what was so attractive about these um, about these lectures and about and, and about this person. And they felt, um, and, and we see this in the political world as well, that this person stands for something. This person has passion for his beliefs. He that he's not afraid to say what to say what he thinks, as opposed to those wishy-washy modern Orthodox rabbis or those wishy-washy others who are, you know, it's gray. They, they can see it this way. They could see it that way. They were, they're afraid to confront. And there's a respect for that authority, um, which uh, t- tells the truth as from, the, from, the, from, their, from their perspective. And people who grow up in cultures in which, which are more authoritarian, um, this, may, this may resonate for them. And they're willing to put up with things being said that are, not politically correct because there's a rejection of political correctness that are not sensitive because there's a sense that sensitivity is just wishy-washy and as a compromise. Right. I, I really, I, that resonates a lot with me. And I, I think that there's so much pushback on being woke. There's a fear of being woke now. So you can't, you can't be too open-minded and, and there, you know, there's a, a signal, like a signal a style of talking that's very 
President Trump like, and um, a lot of people have picked that up. Um, I, I do. That's true. I also think very much what you said about that just validates I'm on the right derech because those people are messed up. And anytime you could validate that I'm okay, that makes me feel good. Right. Another element that I want to go back to, we mentioned earlier, was this idea of I also have the truth on my side. It's sort of this omniscience that certain teachers take on. And I get the temptation. I remember when I first began teaching, when students look up to you, and you know, you're a young guy, but at the time I was probably like 30 years old or something. You know, how much did I know? Probably not that much. But all of a sudden, students who knew less than I did because they were 18 were looking up to me as this paragon of wisdom, as absurd as that was. I mean that not humbly. I mean that honestly. It was reality. But to them, I was a genius. One of my pet peeves is the fact that somehow people think that every rabbi in yeshiva is a genius. There are some, but no more than in any other field. They're teachers. They're very good. Hopefully they're smart. But I don't think genius is somehow prevalent in yeshiva more than other places. But when you're 18 years old, and your teacher knows so much about something which you suddenly care about, you look at them as this brilliant oracle. And there's this temptation to sort of buy into your own PR, the PR that other people have actually set up for you. And I think that can be a source of the problem as well. I don't know if you agree with me, but this idea that I actually know the truth. I know Torah. And because I know Torah is true, and you don't yet know that, I can say anything in the service of the truth because I have that truth. Now, Obviously, we're all Orthodox Jews here. We accept the truth of the Torah. I'm not trying to undermine that at all. But the way that that manifests in people's lives and to say, once again, using this small example with which we opened, uh, if you go to this university, I'm going to tear Kriya, that comes from the sense of I know better than you about the reality of the spiritual world. And once you get past, as you said, Rabbi Dratch, Psak, which does require a specific authority, someone to say, this is how you do it if someone else doesn't know. Once you get into spiritual realities, we're not oracles. Nobody knows. There is nobody on earth who actually has nevuah nowadays. We don't know what is going to happen. And yet sometimes we treat ourselves like we have Ruach HaKodesh. And I think that might be part of the problem too, both the teacher believing his own PR and the students certainly looking at him with that sense of this guy's an oracle. Do you agree with me? Oh, 100%. I think that we're all in, in danger of, uh, as, as you said, believing our own, believing our own hype. When it becomes more about me and my opinion and my cover my and, and the honor that I want, as opposed to what is good for the student, I think that there's I think there's trouble there, and um, there's a lot of humility and the need for us to remind ourselves Shibim Pani Torah, that there are many aspects of truth, and um, that we don't we don't have the corner we don't corner the market on that. But I mean, I've felt that more in the past five weeks that we've been here in Israel than I did for many years uh, living in the United States. Because at any particular minion, it could be Eduram Mizrach, it could be Nusach Svar, it could be Nusach Ashkenaz, it could be Hasidish, it could be Yeshivish, it could be, there's so many things here. And when I went to Shul in the States, it was always the same Nusach and it was always the same people that I saw all of the time. And uh, it, it's humbling. It's really very humbling because I even went to, uh, it's, it's now Elul, uh, I went to an Eduram Mizrach uh, Slichot, which I had never been to before. But the words were different, the tunes were different, the experience were different. I felt like like an outsider, but I I really loved it because it, it it taught me something new, but it gave me new insights into my own experiences and my own practices. I think you're you're leaning towards like I'm just taking it to well, what can be done, you know? And obviously, besides training um, a, a, to prevent abuse and sensitivity training and social emotional training, that we really need to make a priority 
in all of our institutions. But I'm wondering also about what does it mean to be ongoing learners? You know, having making sure there's professional development where there's always new things to learn, not just you know how outside of our bubbles, and also exposing students to different forms of truth within halakha, which is fascinating. And um, again, modeling for them how do you how do you deal with something? How do you how do you struggle with something that you're confused about? That you're it's complicated. And to value their opinions as well. So there's a great story that I'll tell. I'll try to tell very, very quickly. My first wife, Alaa Shalom, uh, was the daughter of Rabbi Norman Lamb, who used to love to tell the story um, about being in the in the in the shir in the in the, in the class of Rabbi Soloveitchik, Zechut Zadli Bracha. And he said that Rabbi Soloveitchik spent about two or three days explaining a certain Tosvot in the Gemara, and the third or fourth morning they began shir by asking them, well, before he was Rabbi Lamb, to explain the Tosvot. So he, he said he went ahead and explained the Tosvot exactly the way the Rav had explained it uh, the past two or three days, to which the Rav said to him, Lamb, he said, I know how I explain the Tosvot. I want to know how you explain it. Now, that's greatness, because most teachers would want the, the, the student to parrot exactly what they've taught with the insights and the perspective that they taught. But the Rav understood that he was trying to mold minds that were independent thinkers certainly within the Masar, within the tradition of, of traditional Jewish values and Torah study, but he valued individual expression. And um, that's difficult for teachers to do when uh, they think what they, that what they say is Torah Misenai. Such a beautiful story. Thank you. It is a gorgeous. I want to name something else that I don't think we talked about, which is uh, we, uh, we should be scared about the future of Judaism. And there is um, a very difficult, a terrifying situation that we have tons of intermarriage and at this rate we're not going to be around for very long there is a lot to be scared of so what when we have students and we can imbue them with feelings of connection and belonging it behooves us to find ways to do that in in supportive honest healthy ways but i don't want to i don't want to pretend that that isn't a big fear well look if we look back throughout jewish history we have different tracts so the types of things that we're that we're talking about, let's say, it was the path of Slabatka, Gadluta Adam, how wonderful and great people are, and et cetera, et cetera. But there was also Navardic, which they would sit around in Vadim and they would cr- openly criticize each other, uh, where they would go out and look disheveled, and they would put or look at some of the classic Musar um, Svarim, which do speak about fire and brimstone. So um, there is that there is that tradition as well. Mm-hmm. The question really is, and I and I heard this from Ravarin Lichtenstein, as I decidedly on a number of occasions, is like what works for this generation. Mm-hmm. And we're learning, I think, that this generation really needs the sense of empowerment and understands the consequence of trauma. And while it may, while trauma, you know, and, and, and this heavy-handedness that we've been speaking of may seem to be effective in the short term for large numbers of students or for certain number of students, mm-hmm. I think in the long term is, you know, certainly in our day and age is very unhealthy and ultimately will not be, will not be successful. Then I want to ask you about that specifically, Rabbi Drash, because you mentioned the Vardak, which of course is a classic, relatively modern example of using the heavy hand in order to convince people. The story I've always heard about Navardak is that they go into a store which sold one thing and ask for something else so that the store owner would berate them and throw them out and say, you idiot, what are you asking for? You know, we don't sell bubblegum here. We sell tools or whatever, you know. I'm assuming they had bubblegum in the Vardak. 
whatever it was, that obviously, as you're saying, is not something which works nowadays, presumably now that we have a better idea of trauma, a better idea of how people can be scarred by that. I'm not going to ask whether it worked then because that's not a fair question. I don't know. We don't know what it was like to live back then. But I will say that people who use the fire and brimstone approach have actually a very strong source on their side, the Torah itself, in Parsha Bukhotai, in this week's Parsha Kitavo. We have Moshe slash Hashem saying extremely difficult things about what's going to happen to you if you don't obey the Torah, if you don't follow the covenant. And these are not couched in simple terms. And even every single day, we say Shema. In Ve'ayayim Shema, in the second paragraph, it talks about the bad things that will happen, exile and not getting Parnassah, etc., if you don't follow the Torah. So I would say, if I want to play devil's advocate, if somebody wanted to follow the Navardakar approach nowadays, and were to say, yeah, I'll tell you why I do this, I'll tell you what my source is, that's what Moshe did in Parsha Kitavo. That's what Hashem did in Parsha Tuchukotai. How are we to tell them that what the Torah itself says is a way of trying to get people to go on the straight and narrow is invalid nowadays? Well, I don't know that it's invalid. I just think, um, look, I think Hazal struggled with this as well. So in the Gemara, for example, the, the, the opinion of Rava that says, Schar mitzvah bahai al there is no such thing as reward and punishment in this world. Uh, that's left for the world. That's left for the world to come. I think he was struggling with the very questions that we're that we're talking about, that we don't live in a world today of absolute cause and effect. Uh, the Chazonish is known for having said that that there's no hashrat uh, today. There's no we don't see that in our we don't see that in our experience, and because we don't see that in our experience, because of a situation of Hester Punim that that God is in, in, is in hiding, as it were. Um, I think we need to be very careful how we use that because the, applica- the specific applications of that can be very manipulative. Look, it comes Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and we speak about the books being opened and our fates being and our fates being sealed. And Atana Tokov is a very scary kind of uh, of piyut of a prayer, which seems to support one particular one particular worldview. But who amongst us has, as you mentioned in the beginning, has the nevuah, has the prophecy, has the ruach hakodesh, has the divine insight? to know what the tit-for-tat is when it comes to these types of things. And I think it's very presumptuous for us to say that. You speak about kitavo, you're talking about the end of the Parsha. The beginning of the Parsha speaks about vidui ma'aser, where a person comes before God and says, I have done everything you have commanded me. It's a very positive kind of approach. Rav Cook has a variation of the uh, the vidui, the ashamnu bagadnu, not we have sinned and we have betrayed you, but rather Ahavnu and Beirachnu, we have loved and we have blessed, that there was, he understood that in this generation, we need to emphasize the positive aspects of our behavior, of our commitment, of our, of our lives, rather than the negative. So yes, when something bad happens, then we're called to do tshuva and we're called for introspection. But what exactly was the cause of a, um, of, of a terrible event that took place? Uh, I would not be amongst those who would say it's because of sleeve length, or it's because of hair covering, or it's because of uh, whatever, whatever else it may be. I think I, I think the most that we can expect, and we, that most that we can say, is that events in our lives cause us to um, look at ourselves and to look at the way we're the way we're living, and say, you know, as Rabbi Soloveitchik pointed out, says, "What now? For what purpose might this be?" And then build something positive from that. But to identify it with a specific type of sin. Um, on a personal level or on a national level, I think is a very dangerous thing, which we have no, don't have the capacity for today. Well, especially because most people that I've heard of who blame, who, you know, 
cause, you know, draw lines of causality. You know, this terrible thing happened because of this. I, I've never heard of, of a Rebbe say this happened because of something I did. It's always this other community. So it, it, that's one interesting thing. If you want to blame yourself, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in learning that kind of Torah and what we could learn. Rabbi then points out in his essay on, uh, on the Holocaust, he says, uh, when it came to the Shoah, so the Zionists blame the non-Zionists, the anti-Zionists blame the Zionists, the religious blame the non-religious, everybody blames somebody else. He says, but we say in our prayers, not because of your sins to be going to exile, but because of our sins. And so we need, in that sense, need to be inspired to look into ourselves and to try to improve, but not to, but 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 not in a way that is so heavy-handed that we we destroy ourselves in the, in the in the process. So, like, I would I would just say that there's two extremes. You have like the kuzari who says that, you know, if you if I stub my toe, is that hashkacha? So it's not unless you're Yaakov Avinu. Like, if you're a massive tzaddik, then you know. So, but in so many, I know in particular in seminaries, we do a lot of shirim about hashkacha. Isn't it hashkachadik? And and I I find that very inspiring mitzadachad. And I I, I remember around nine eleven. You know, reading about all of these people, like such hashkacha, I went to Slichot, and therefore I missed it, and I wasn't in the Twin Towers. And then there's the people that went to an early, early minion, so that they wouldn't be late to work, and they were in the Twin Towers. So, was you? You can't do hashkacha only one way, and so there's this really empowering piece of seeing Yad Hashem in your life, which is, I, I mean, I, I talk about Hashem a lot. I'm a big believer in seeing Yad Hashem in my life and just being so grateful for. You know, Hashem, and then also feeling like I have the power to say causality, and that goes back to the control thing. I think, you know, why that happened? It happened because I didn't. I spoke lashon hara. You know why that happens? So, insofar as it's helpful and empowering, and I can do good, it's like the Gemara Brachot You know, I should check something bad happens. I should check, but it doesn't say I should check your actions. The Gemara doesn't say if something bad and that happens in the world, I should check. You know, these other people. It says I should check myself, and it's and it goes back to what you said earlier is that I think it makes us feel better to think we're okay. It's them who's who are tipping the boat, like they're drilling on their side of the boat, not me. You're both relating to some ideas I've been thinking about a lot lately. In fact, on Thursday I wrote an essay on my Substack about I'm now in Florida. I'm recording. I'm visiting my parents, and on the plane over here, I watched a movie called "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." I don't know if you remember that book from when we were kids, but they made it into a movie, and I wanted to see it as a piece of nostalgia. And in fact, I found it to be very moving in a way which I had not anticipated. People who are interested could read that article. But my point was almost, and I don't want to get too far afield in terms of our topic today. My point was that one of the things which I think becomes apparent in that movie, and I think it's a very Jewish idea, in fact, if we look for it carefully, is that on fast days we say, Seek out Hashem when He's available, call to Him when He's near. And that's interesting because on fast days He's supposed to not be near. And I wonder if we often say we see Hashem when He answers yes. And perhaps our job is to say we're even closer to Hashem when He answers no. When he says mm-hmm. yes, he's giving us a present. When he says no, he's empowering us. He's saying you have to do it yourself. And anyway, that's what you're saying now in terms of hashkacha is exactly that. We can't only see it in one direction. When Hashem says yes, it's great hashkacha. But when Hashem says no, well, I'm not going to talk about that. We have to somehow say when he says no also is part of our system of belief, part of our system of bitachon to say, I guess he wants me to take care of it myself, or I guess there's some other thing going on over here. Perhaps mm-hmm. the divine embrace, as I put it, is more apparent when he says no than when he says yes. But that's obviously not really our topic right now. But I want to take the other side of the coin. I'm also thinking that what we can do is 
empower our students to maintain their sensitivity and to be able to tease out, you know, what I can take from this Rav. I don't have to discount everything this Rav is telling me. I remember before my kids, each of my kids went to Israel for a gap year. I said to each of them in their own way, you're going to have be exposed to some amazing Torah while you're there. And you don't have to agree or even respect the ideas of every single teacher that you have. But your job is to listen and discern and be open and curious. And you don't have to discount all the Torah of someone because you don't agree with all of their Torah. And you 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 are allowed to say, huh, I really disagree with how you handle that. I really, in your head. And I think that that's also part of the chinuch that we need to provide, that you're allowed to have your own discernment. And the idea that the world is not black and white, exactly. that is something which I am constantly harping upon, that people are generally not all good or all bad. That's extraordinarily rare. That's in comic books. That's in cartoons. In real life, there are things you can learn from everybody. Hello, maybe call it dumb. And there are probably things you can learn negatively from everybody if you look carefully enough, things that, well, maybe I'm not going to do that. Maybe I'm going to act differently. I'd like to go back, actually, and ask you about whether there actually nowadays ever is a place for manipulation, intimidation, what I'd call bullying tactics. My impression is that the answer is no, but is there a place at some points where it's important to tell a student, and I want to get back to this as well, that I'm disappointed in you, or is that simply verboten? It's something which we can never say. I think it depends on the relationship. I think it depends on how it's, I think it depends on how it's said. I think it depends on the kind of behavior that we're talking about. I think if we're talking about um, immoral behavior, that maybe there's a better opening for that kind of conversation. I, I think when it comes to the kind of uh, video type of thing that you're talking about, it, uh, it it may be a little bit more maybe a little bit more complicated. Uh, look, when the, the Mishnah says in, in Makot um, that uh, a parent and a, and a teacher are permitted to hit their students. Um, because it's done for the sake for the sake of chinuch, it's done for the sake of education. It's a mitzvah. It may be a mitzvah to do so. And there's a pasuk in the verse in in, in Mishlei in the book of Proverbs that chosech uh, shivto, a person who spares the rod, hates his child. So you had this type of this type of tradition. I think, though, a number of things. Number one is that if you look at all the halachic formulation of that, that whatever physical uh, corporal punishment was was permitted was only to the extent that it had a positive benefit no, and no more. I think that we don't know how to measure that. And therefore, any kind of corporal punishment would be, would, 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 would be, uh, would be, would be prohibited. Um, because I think, especially we've come to learn that uh, hitting a child or hitting a student is more about the needs of the teacher than it is about the child. And that that actual hitting is, um, is very negative. I mean, it's, uh, as it has, has negative, has negative impacts. But doesn't mean that you refrain from discipline. I think that, that the idea of the rod, that God's rod and staff comfort me, means it's a sense of direction. It's a sense of, of, of sometimes placing limitations, but not in a physical or violent, not in a physical or violent manner. I think that that's uh, that, that's an important. Uh, I think that's an important idea. The other important mitzvah that's involved with this, there's a mitzvah of rebuke that you have to tell somebody. If 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 they if they're doing if they're doing something wrong and the fact that it's a double verb, hocheach, tochiach, rebuke, you shall rebuke, says the Gemara, I mean, even a hundred times. 
Because Russell Mantra has a very fascinating interpretation of that. Because he asked the question, so uh, I remember being in Israel a number of years ago in a certain community, and there was a car driving by and this shriek of Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos. And somehow I didn't think that shrieking Shabbos, 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 even a hundred times was going to change the minds or the heart of anybody who was, who was driving by. He says, not that you repeat the same tocha, the same rebuke a hundred times, but each rebuke has to be divided into a hundred pieces. That you have to explain to a person what Shabbos is and what the beauty of Shabbos is and what the what, that the possibilities of Shabbos are, and and and, and divide that lesson into a hundred small pieces so that eventually the person will understand what Shabbos is about, and then the tocha, the rebuke, is is really going to be effective. And I think that's the same thing of the teacher as well. To to come on, you know, full full guns blazing that you're no good or that you're uh, that you're going to go to hell or that uh, whatever I'm going to tear Korea and we sit shiver for you is not going to be effective, but rather to divide to have a, those conversations little piece at a time a little little bit by bit so that the student understands what the teacher's concerns are and what the possibilities are and it's trying and the student can respond to it and react to it and process it then you have something which is extremely effective. I love that. I'm going to yes and, but qualify with respect. I'm, I'm just thinking of one case of a student that I was involved with in an administrative role. A high school boy was going around showing pictures and uh, naked pictures of a girl that a bunch of the kids knew. And there's a certain, I should not tell him that he, I'm going to tear Korea on him, but there are certain behaviors that ad con, like that are absolutely not tolerable. Like we're not gonna, you don't get to be a part of this community and do that activity because that's not safe for anybody. And so I wanna just qualify that there is a way to say expel a kid from a school or a program. And there are reasons for that. And there are ways that we should do it in a, in a tsanua and loving way. So it's about the action, not the person, but also, Let's let's just be clear that there are lines here. And whatever the lines are, but like if let's say you're running a yeshiva for the year and you're not allowed to have your cell phone on, on Shabbos and someone does and it's not an emergency and whatever it is, and maybe that maybe that's that school's line. There are ways to say goodbye to that student in a really respectful way to give that 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 child um a dignified out, which I'm very that feels very important to me. But it doesn't mean you don't have standards. Yeah, but as you said, you have to be very careful about it. I think the story is about the Chazonish, but I may be mis, uh, misremembering. But a, a Rebbe who wanted to throw a student out of the yeshiva, and he comes to, I think it was the Chazonish to discuss it. And he said to him, have you consulted with 23 of your uh, of your colleagues? He says, what do you mean? He says, because this is Dine Nefashot. That, and his, his Sanhedrin of 23 had to make that decision. And it's not so simple. We want to maintain standards and we want to have boundaries. And they're very important. We're concerned about the impact and the influence on others. But the impact and the influence on that child's life and his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren throughout the generations is actually getting a fush out and has to be weighed very, very, very carefully. And the safety of that young lady and her community. And I'm just saying to you, like, 100%. yes. 100%. Look, I, th- I think, look, in that particular case, I think our bias is always towards innocent victims. Who are the victims, or to protect others from becoming victims? Right, and uh, that that certainly goes without saying. But we have to do things in a smart way. Right, it's fascinating when you say that, Rabbi Drash, because that idea of the consult with twenty three people. It also is interesting who the twenty three are. I'll say from my own experience, when I ran a yeshiva. 
there were times, we didn't do it often, but there were times when we had to expel a student. And I remember in one particular case, it was a very, I'm not going to get into the situation, but it was a very controversial situation. It was very difficult for us to make a decision. And my co-Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Wiliki, and I decided that we had to expel the student. And our teaching staff was not happy about it. They largely came over to us very respectfully, but they thought we were wrong. They thought we should work with the student. And it was very interesting because when we spoke to our teachers, they were almost peachad, almost uniform in saying, no, you should not expel him. When we spoke to administrators of other yeshivot, they were uniformly saying, you absolutely must expel him because we have different understandings. When you're a teacher, you have to look at the specific student and what you can do with that student. When you're an administrator, you're looking at the institution largely and what is going to allow the institution to thrive or at least not to collapse. And sometimes those two themselves have to be balanced. And in fact, I'll say I was very pleased with my faculty, the fact that they didn't want us to throw him out. They came from a very genuine place. And the fact that we had to do it anyway in the end, it was largely a matter of what is your perspective? Because what are you looking at? Are you looking at Gantz Kal Yisrael or are you looking at this individual student? And every individual case, it really depends on that. I'd like to actually move on to something else. We don't have that much time, but... At the very beginning, Mrs. Dratch, you mentioned disappointment. And I've been holding on to this question from the beginning. And you said that is, I don't remember who you quoted, but you said... Rick Lavoie. Rick Lavoie. That is worse than saying I'm angry. Emotionally and viscerally, I can sense that that's true, but I don't understand it intellectually. Can you explain what's so damaging about saying I'm disappointed? And if we can go further, is there ever a place to say I'm disappointed? Or is that, again, that phrase, is that phrase one which we can't use? Is it something specific about that? I don't have the data and I'm not an expert at all. So I refer people to go. I'm, I'm sure there are studies on it. I think Brene Brown has made, you know, in her life's work to talk about shame. Um, and I am a big fan of her work. So shame is, is really damaging. And that, that is what she studies. So I refer to Brene Brown on all counts. I think there are times to say, you know, that my mom once said to me in a really delicate way. And my mom is big, one of my greatest friends and and in her inner voices she said Rach that wasn't your greatest moment and that was a great way to say to me like I could have done better but it wasn't about me disappointing her it was about like I could do better so I think that there is room for saying to someone you know this moment wasn't your best and and I, I do think that the phrase disappointed is is a careful it, I'm, I don't know I have to think about it some more but shame is is powerful and damaging Rabbi Riskin tells a wonderful story about Mechavetz Chaim, that there was a student in Raden who was caught smoking on Shabbos. And he was called into the into the, into the Chavetz Chaim's room, and he was afraid of what, the, what Chavetz Chaim was going to say to him. And the Chavetz Chaim didn't say anything. He just stood up, he just stood there, and he held his hands and he cried. Rabbi Riskin said that he told the story many years later, I think he was speaking in Florida, whatever else it is, and an old man comes in, and the audience comes after and says, I was that young man. And the impact that it had on his life and, and, and it turned him around. And so there was a sense of shame and of, and of disappointing this great tzaddik. But I, I think sometimes, you know, that's okay, depending on, on, on how it's done and why and, and why it's done. I think our kids know, need to know that we're proud of them. Um, but if they disappoint us, that, they're, that they are disappointing us. Um, I, I think the question is one of motive. If it's done uh, from, from manipulation, then I think that that's not a holy motive. If it's done because that was really the inner feeling, and, and it was, and that inner feeling was being communicated, that there may be some positive benefit to it. I, I guess I would qualify by saying it's not about disappointing me; it's about disappointing yourself. 
And if it's about my feelings, I don't think that's, you should not be emotionally responsible for me. But if it's about you, like disappointing, like you can do better. This, I don't know. I, I don't think I would want to disappoint my parents. No, I think, I think so. no, but I'm saying, but this is part of the conversation. Yeah, I guess so. And that realizing that what I might do or might say may be a disappointment for them is a big motivation for, to keep me in line. Right. I mean, I, and I guess I think that goes back to what we said at the beginning, but as a teacher, you become, the, and a parent, you become the inner voice of the student, right? And I think about that a lot, you know, who my inner voices are. And, and, and so we have to be so careful about, you know, those things. Yeah. You know, I interviewed someone named Tim Madigan about two years ago on this podcast. He lives in Texas and he was, I'm going to use this phrase, a close student, a close Talmud of Mr. Rogers, of Fred Rogers. I love a shalom. And the book he wrote was called I'm Proud of You. And he talks very, very candidly about his relationship with Mr. Rogers. He originally talked to him simply because he was writing an article about him. Tim is a journalist. But they developed this beautiful relationship. And frankly, it's one of the greatest Mostert books I've ever read. And I don't want to misquote it, but the book is called I'm Proud of You. And basically, if I recall correctly, and I've read the book more than once, Mr. Rogers tells Tim at different points, you could never disappoint me. And that doesn't mean that Tim can never do anything that's wrong. But it means that Mr. Rogers isn't manipulating him with his own emotions, saying, well, if you do that, my love for you will be lessened or will be less acute. He's saying that our relationship is about you as a person, independent of what you do. It's about who you are as a person. And in that sense, you can't disappoint me. I'm always there for you. And I think that that message is a very, I'm not saying it's right for everybody, but frankly, it really resonates with me personally. I thought it was beautiful. Look, that's what we say, bani matem l'shem alokeitem. And the debate between Rabbi Yehud and Rabbi Meir is to whether we're God's children only if we're good children or no matter what. But we but we paskin that it's no matter what. God is always is always avinu. Um, so even if we disappoint Him in the way we behave or the way we treat each other, nevertheless there's this avarabah, there's avat olam, there's this eternal love regardless of uh, of how we behave. So I would say just to bring it full circle, we have to make it socially acceptable for teachers to go to colleagues and to hear back from their administrators. How can I do better? Are there moments I'm being too harif to really give, because I am not perfect. I might disappoint you. I might disappoint my students. I might have, I, I might say the wrong thing and hurt somebody's feelings. And I, it has to be socially acceptable. And in fact, expected that we help each other. We help raise each other up. One student was doing a, um, a a statistics class when I was working in high school. She stopped by my office and she said she's doing for statistics. She wants to know what's your greatest fear. I said, okay, here's my greatest fear. My greatest fear is that I'm going to be distracted, have a stomach ache, and not feel good. And some kid's going to say something like "hello," and I'm going to miss it, and I'll say something wrong, and then the kid will hate Judaism. <laughs> you know, like or I'm going to say something wrong to a kid, and it's just gonna, and, and she says, "Wow, that's like oddly specific. I can't use that." <laughs> like, that is my fear. It's a great answer. <laughs> it's it's a terrifying space to be in, but I think that we have to make it socially acceptable that as colleagues, we give each other feedback about that because we're not perfect. And we are going to make these mistakes. We will all go into that gray area because we're human. You know, we're almost out of time and I have a list of questions I have not yet asked. So I'm going to almost do, I'm not going to call it a lightning round, but I'm going to mention a few things and ask you what you think about them. I hope that's okay. Just because I think it's important that we address certain specific, specific behaviors even before we close. I want to give one example. Some teachers in the context of using this intimidation or manipulation 
will employ mockery. And I think that mockery should be completely not okay in any context. I don't even mean of anybody in the room. I'm talking about people outside the room or of groups of people. Do you agree? Yes. 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 Never okay. Mockery cannot be used. Okay, good. Another thing is, whether it's done on purpose or not on purpose, I've seen this as well, is the peer pressure. Giving another example, I I don't want to make it personal. I'll, I'll just say in general, I've seen situations where a teacher will berate a student, berate a young adult, and that young adult is having a hard time. And later on, he'll ask his friends and say, what's going on? Why is he so against me? And his friends will say, well, it's because you're X, Y, and Z, effectively echoing the teacher. So whether the teacher intended to use peer pressure or not, sometimes the peer pressure can contribute to the trauma of feeling like you're outside the group. And it also, of course, helps the kids who are inside the group feel more like they're on the inside. Is there ever a place for peer pressure in that sense? Well, I, I, I want to redefine your example of peer pressure, because it sounds to me like what your example is, is about classroom culture. Okay. And that... We, we create peer pressure or we, we, we all in, we all um, co-create cultures of belonging. So if that's the, if that's the setup the teacher has created where this kid is out because he or she believes X and we're in because we don't, then that's the culture they've created. So I'm not sure that that's the same as peer pressure, whereas peer pressure is maybe something that could be sometimes outside of. Right. But I think sometimes peer pressure is good so that, I know earlier in my life, as I was becoming more and more observant, so the fact that I was part of a group that was going through this process together, and there was certain, I think, positive peer pressure for us to step up and want to learn more and want to do more and want to, and want to commit more. So I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a balanced kind of thing. If it's there could be positive peer pressure, but I think what, what you're describing it, yes. it could be a very terrible thing as well. I, I again agreed that that's a terrible thing, but like I, I, I hung out one week. I remember with a bunch of women who just never ever spoke Lush and Hara. It was the best peer pressure ever. <laughs> I didn't speak Lush and Hara for all week because you just, just didn't. You just didn't. Okay, so I hear that. I guess what I am referring to is more what you said, Mrs. Dratch, about classroom culture where the teacher has created a situation where there's some people who are following what he likes and some people who are not. And as a natural type of osmosis almost, those students who are in the inside become echoes of the teacher and then outside the classroom continue to berate the student, even if it's not direct, but when he wants to confide, they say, well, what do you expect? You're not, you're not putting on tillin. You know, what, what do you expect him to say? You know, or the things same like when that. a teacher is, makes a racist comment and then the students embody that or a parent makes a racist comment and the students embody that in that sense. Okay. Another question I want to ask you about is something which we mentioned earlier, specifically what you said, Mrs. Dratch, about bullying being subjective. So I'm asking for a practical way of people avoiding it, because if bullying is subjective and if you have a teacher or any person or parent who wants to stay away from it, but is afraid, well, I I don't even know what it is anymore. How does one define bullying in such a way that it can be avoided? I think that it's about checking yourself constantly, you know, we do this rush Chodesh, we do like a Yom Kippur Katan and we have we have systems in place. We check in with people. You know, we we ask our students and there's anonymous forms, Google forms. I do exit tickets in my class. I check in. How are we doing? There are student teacher conferences. You 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 check in with a school counselor, you check, you check in, you get curious. You don't assume that you have that you have the right take on whatever's going on, you ask. I think you have to ask and not just assume that what you're saying is correct. Uh, dealing with this situation, 
which a person's response to being challenged in certain behaviors, well, but this is my culture. That's not okay anymore to say, this is how I, this is how I do things. Um, if a teacher is relating to students, so however many students are in that person's classroom, each one is an individual. The teacher has to know not just how to teach each student individually, whatever the material is, but has to know how to respond, how to interact with that student, how to talk to that student. It takes a lot of work. But uh, if you're a teacher, if you're a Rebbe, if you're a rabbi, that's your responsibility. Okay, my final question today, and again, I could go on for a lot longer, but the final question I want to ask today is, we've been speaking about people who actually care about this, meaning... When you say that we have to talk to our colleagues, we have to be able to listen to people and see how we're doing constantly, work hard at avoiding bullying and the like, this is for people for whom this is actually a value. There are also teachers out there, we've mentioned some of them by implication, who don't care. This is actually their modus operandi. They probably like doing it like this, whether their motivations are pure or impure, whether it's their own psychological baggage or an authentic attempt to try and get kids to be religious because they think that's important. One way or the other, they think that what they're doing is God's work. Is there anything we can do about those people who aren't listening to this podcast, who don't care about what the Dratches and Scott Kahn say about bullying or intimidation or manipulation? The answer might be there's nothing we can do, but on some level to discredit this methodology so that it can become at least less prevalent or people will at least stop listening to them and taking these bullies' words as God's word. Is there anything we can do? Oh, I, look, I think that that's what I tried to do with JSAFE and that's what people are trying to do with other type, similar types of organizations. We need to empower individuals, the community, but individuals not to tolerate this when they see that something is wrong and to speak up against it. Uh, and it's not easy to do. It's easier now than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, but not to, but not to make it okay. So that if you're speaking to a friend or you're sitting around a Shabbos table and somebody quotes this person, so you put a stop to it. Say, I will not entertain that, that there's something that's wrong. There's something that's wrong with that. And you create a groundswell from the bottom up to make this type of thing um, unacceptable. It's not going to solve the problem, but it could certainly go a long way. It will certainly influence our children I know through my JSAFE work, my children um, would stand up to their peers if they would hear uh, misogynist statements being made or other kinds of behavior that was unacceptable because they knew we created a culture in our in our family, in our home, where this type of thing was um, was just was just unacceptable. And uh, the more that we talk about it, the more important it is. I'll just we haven't been naming names, but I will make one name and something that I do is a personal thing. Shlomo Karbach is a very complicated, abusive figure in many ways. And I have personally met a number of his victims. Um, and, and so I cannot participate and I will not participate in a Karbach minion. I think it's something which is a terrible chidol Hashem. If I go to a minion and they start to sing Kabbalat Shabbat, and then I'll walk out. And people around me know that I walk out. Doesn't change, unfortunately, doesn't change what they do, but it begins to sense it begins to sensitize people. And other people have made similar types of commitments as a result of that, because I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I'm not afraid to I'm not afraid to respond to it. And I think we have to create this kind of um, of environment where when people hear about a teacher um, who may be respected by others, but we know that the behavior is unacceptable, to, to say something about it, so that uh, it just does not become acceptable because nobody's talking about it. I would add, first of all, highlighting speakers who don't speak like that would be helpful, making sure they get a lot of PR, helping spread that word. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that um, speak that way in the public sphere are very um, aggressive about getting their names out there and 
And so it's hard to get other voices out there. And the other thing is, I really think that empowering our students, what do you do if this happens? Let's talk that through. What can you do in that moment? And how can you at least support that student? Because it could be you tomorrow, right? And really unpacking with our students what that looks like and, and offering, uh, I want. I think I mentioned this to you once, I wanna write a book, don't take my idea, um, about pocket sentences, that's what it's called. And because I've been collecting these sentences that people, because you don't know what to say in certain occasions that, oh, I didn't know what I could say that. So giving parents and students and teachers pocket sentences to use in such a case, if they see something uncomfortable, if they see something that makes them feel uh, like, if they're not sure if that was abuse or if they're sure it was abuse, but they don't want to come off like they were sure it was abuse. Like, what can you say to so that you have the integrity of not not standing by and letting that happen? You know, what does it look like to say something or to do something? What can you do? And I think that the more we can have those conversations before, that's very, very helpful. The last episode of Seinfeld has this wonderful thing of Jerry and his friends uh, observing somebody who was in need of help and they didn't help and now they're on trial. And uh, the, the defense lawyer uh, says at the trial, well, my um, my clients were innocent bystanders. He says, you never heard of a guilty bystander by, you know, uh, they were innocent bystanders. And in halacha, that's no such thing as an innocent bystander. But tamar adam means that if you stand by while somebody else is in trouble, you're guilty. And I, I think when we see somebody being manipulated, somebody being abused, somebody mm-hmm. um, being taunted or bullied or whatever it may be, we have an obligation to the best of our ability to to intervene or to say something, or at least to share it with others so it's not normalized mm-hmm. and it doesn't become acceptable. I said that was my last question, but that leads to one final question. I really mean it this time. What about the student who's being bullied? You talk, Sidrach, about pocket sentences. The student who is the person who is experiencing this manipulation and intimidation, what right. can he say or she say? There's a, there's a bunch of things depending on the situation. The person needs to be empowered to do that as well. Absolutely. You can't only rely on friends. Right. And sometimes the person cannot say anything in that moment and can and follow up with reporting it or talking to parents or talking to a trusted adult or students or going up to the teacher later with a script and saying, listen, I just want to unpack what just happened because here's how I experienced what just went down. I And maybe your intention was not that, but I wanted to tell you. Well, I think we need to create an environment where there are safe people to talk to. When I first started speaking about domestic violence uh, and, and child abuse, um, people started calling me and started coming to me uh, because I was perceived as somebody safe and somebody that they could share their frustrations with and somebody to whom they could come to look for, to look for direction. And I think that those of us who understand the consequences of this intimidation and bullying that we've been speaking about need to have public conversations about it so that our students or our friends or our children or our children's friends know that this is unacceptable and that if and when they find themselves in this situation, that we may be safe people to come to to um, to, to, to talk about and to get the kind of support that they need and not to bear that burden alone because they feel nobody cares. Well, I want to mention to both of you, I didn't anticipate this. I actually found this conversation very personally moving because it just feels so hopeful to me to know that there are people like you out there who've thought this through. As I say, this is something which I've thought about, but I haven't thought it through. It's something which bothers me, but I haven't ever suggested solutions. And to see two people who are 
really on top of this and have real ways of approaching something which I think is a serious, serious problem in the Orthodox world in so many contexts gives me a lot of hope. So I want to thank both of you. This is Rachel Dratch, Rabbi Mark Dratch. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege. And congratulations to you for bringing this important topic to the public. Hi, I'm Ryan Blaney, a third generation race car driver. And we dedicate a lot of our time to going as fast as possible. My grandpa Lou is the reason why my dad and I started racing, and I'm really proud to follow on his tracks. But when my grandpa was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was a very unexpected bump in the road for us. I've learned a lot on this journey with my grandpa Lou, and the memories of my grandpa will always be with me. It's important to notice if older family members are acting differently, experiencing problems with their memory, or having trouble with routine tasks. Talking about Alzheimer's can be really tough, but if you notice something, have a conversation with your loved one. Encourage them to see a doctor or offer to go with them. Early detection of Alzheimer's can give your family time to explore support services, make a plan for the future, and access available treatments. The Alzheimer's Association provides care, support, and research to help you take control of the situation with your family and manage the disease together. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. Visit alz.org slash time to talk, a message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.